Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. This month, we are pleased to bring you a special episode that departs from our normal path. For the past several months, we've been looking at forgotten or neglected books and essays on liberal education. Well, the past two years have seen the publication of three fascinating books on this very topic, all published by Princeton University Press. First, we had Lost in Thought by Zena Hitz, then Let's Be Reasonable by Jonathan Marks, and most recently, Rescuing Socrates by Roosevelt Montas. All three books provide a defense of liberal education rooted in the great books, but they do so in strikingly different ways. This month, we bring you a conversation with these three authors. Zena Hitz is tutor at St. John's College and a founder of the Catherine Project. Jonathan Marks is professor of politics and chair of the Department of Politics and International Relations at Ursinus College. Roosevelt Montas is senior lecturer in American Studies and English at Columbia University. He's also the director of the American Studies Freedom and Citizenship Program. They've also managed to review one another's books, and we'll put links to those reviews in the show notes for the episode. You'll hear references to Zena's tiara during the conversation. All of these authors demanded some sort of appearance fee equivalent or a signing bonus, if you will. Enduring Interest is committed to doing whatever it takes to bring you these high-quality, very high-profile guests. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Zena chose to wear her tiara, as one should, during our conversation. Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm really excited to have uh, these three authors of three outstanding books on liberal education. Uh, hello, Zena Hitz. Hello, Flag. Hello, Roosevelt Montas. Hello, Flag. It's good to be here. And hello, Jonathan Marks. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have all three of you. Uh, so the first thing I noticed when I read uh, your books and kind of was reflecting on uh, the different accounts you all give of, of liberal education, the nature of liberal education, the different goods of liberal education. Obviously, there are lots of areas of agreement um, that I was struck by, but I was also interested in the in teasing out some of the differences. And so I tr was trying to reduce each each of your books to uh, catchphrases. Maybe Princeton can take advantage of this in future uh, marketing endeavors. But so I, th I thought, Zena, Zena, your book can be reduced to liberal learning is self-forgetting, an exercise in wonder. Jonathan, liberal learning is self-discipline, an exercise in intellectual humility. And Roosevelt argues liberal learning is self-discovery, an exercise in self-examination. So is it possible that all of you can be right? Can learn, liberal learning be all three of these of these things? Let's just talk in general terms about your different accounts. Um, and, and I thought maybe we'd start by asking the authors of, of uh, not to talk about their own book, to talk about the other books of the other two authors. So Jonathan and Roosevelt, am I being fair to, to Zena in, in my bumper sticker, learning is self-forgetting? What do you think? Well, I, I can't believe that you you'd attack Zeno like this. <laughs> I, I, I didn't think it was that kind of show. Um, 
but I, I, I'd say, I mean, partly that sounds right to me, maybe even mostly. There's this wonderful part, I think, at the beginning of Zina's wonderful book where she talks about, you know, uh, early learning, uh, fascination, knowing 17 species of penguin, which I won't ask her to name right now, uh, <laughs> making, <laughs> making constitutions for, for her, her stuffed animals. That's, that's something I'd like to know more about. Um, but, and, and somehow learning, I think in Zina's book is at least in touch with this, with this, with this free play um, of the mind and imagination. But there's another aspect of Zena's book too, um, and, and, and that's the part that has to do uh, with the inner life as a refuge from suffering, uh, which it seems to me um, is, is a little bit less playful. And intellectual work as a form of loving service, something that might help mend um, our suffering. Uh, there's a sense in the book that our work would be worthless if it didn't fulfill a real human need. Um, and not just uh, the need of the person who's doing the thinking, um, but the needs of others as well. Um, so I, I think that there's there, there's more than. than yeah, very one. good, Roosevelt. How about you? How how how? Yeah, well, well first I want to. Um, <clears throat> yeah, first I want. How do they say it? I want to express solidarity with uh, Jonathan's outrage <laughs> about this um, attack on Zena, our dear colleague. I've never um, even attacked in my own and, podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I want to answer the question in the affirmative. Yes, it is unfair to uh, reduce Zena's reflections on, on liberal education down to this uh, bon mot of, of learning being self-forgetting. Um, and I, I guess I want to just, just challenge in general the impulse to, to try to get liberal education down to an essence. Um, you know, liberal education, I think by its, by its nature, and that's, that's part of what the word liberal in it mean, means, is that it is not, um, it's, it, you can't reduce it to an essence. It is concerned with this condition of, of freedom, which is uh, incalculable. Uh, it, is, it is precisely the ways in which humans as, as self-determining autonomous beings, at least beings who experience themselves that way, are uh, fundamentally unpredictable, incalculable, fundamentally fundamentally free. So I think defining liberal education always bumps into that, that, that you, you can't, uh, you know, I was having a conversation with, with someone the other day who reading St. Augustine in college turned her into a, into a Catholic. And I've reading St. Augustine in college for me allowed me to walk away from Christianity. It's it's liberal education doesn't um, lend itself to to reductions down to essences in my view. So, in that sense, it's an unfair um, attack on Zena. But um, obviously, like uh, all caricatures, it does have a kernel of truth. And um, Zena's book does not only kind of show and exemplify this aspect of liberal education, a kind of freedom from the narrow confines of the self, but it makes that appealing. It makes that something that you want to do. So, yeah. Good. Zina, do you have any reactions to what Jonathan and Roosevelt have said? No, it's always nice to hear kind words, honestly, especially when you've been so viciously attacked. <laughs> <laughs>
the, the, something I would add just to, to back up Roosevelt a bit, I think all three of the books come from a personal experience. Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, Jonathan's in a more subtle way, but very much so. I mean, Jonathan is evidently from his book, a teacher and someone who works for the good of his academic community. And he communicates who he is in the book in a way that's, I think, doesn't sound, I mean, discipline is is kind of a tough word, even though I use it a lot myself. Um, it's not a matter of choosing pain. Um, it's a matter of choosing a better life, like facing reality and um, getting out of these sort of self-indulgent high drama political games. Uh, and likewise, Roosevelt, I think, I mean, I, I, I think all three of us are teachers and we communicate ourselves as teachers also through the books. And I, I think one of the advantages of that personal witness is that it leaves, uh, leaves things open for interpretation, harder to reduce to, to buzzwords. But yeah, thanks. I think that's good. I mean, I, I, I deliberately, uh, in emphasizing the self-forgetting, I ignored the prologue to, to your book, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying to I'm well, trying mean, to I emphasize the difference. I think about myself all the time. I'm very self-absorbed. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, self-forgetting also, it's that sounds like distraction. I mean, that, I actually don't use the word wonder much. But I don't yeah. want to know. Yeah, 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 yeah. This isn't about um, me. This is about education. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, let, let's just move to, to, to Jonathan's book then. Um, by self-discipline, you know, I was focusing on his account of, of rationality and being reasonable. He draws on on John Locke, and you know the difficulty of following the difficulty of following an argument, you know, to its logical conclusion, and how students uh, can have a rough time, you know, doing that. And so part of part of what has to happen, and this is something that struck me about about Jonathan's. Uh, argument about little education that I hadn't really heard before is 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 you have to kind of show students when they're failing at it. I think this is the section on your book, Jonathan, where you talk about kind of the importance of of shame. So I'd be curious about Roosevelt and Zena, your reaction to to this part of of Jonathan's book that um, liberal learning can be a hard thing, and and following these arguments isn't always easy, right? It isn't it is usually not easy. And so it can be it can be a very frustrating, humbling experience. So maybe just react to that part of, of Jonathan's argument. I think That's, I yeah. Please, Zena. I think I agree completely that um, it's difficult. Uh, being liberated is difficult. I think one of the things I have disagreed with about Jonathan is whether shame is quite the right way of describing it. So I think because of its difficulty, for instance, um, it's important that the environment in the classroom, I mean, I think Jonathan agrees with this, but the import, it's important that the environment in the classroom be respectful, uh, civil, um, that it not be, that it be serious, that it not be casual in case that you just happen to casually swipe away someone's dearest principle. Uh, and also that I, th- I think uh, liberal education offer any asp- any kind of change that we want to undergo is better um, aspiration. Positive ideals work better than than uh, punishment. So I one of the reasons why my book is written in 
in the way that it is with all these different stories about various admirable things is because I'm trying to make it clear that there's something to admire, something to aspire to, something to desire, something that you want. And that I think is often easier to take than there's something wrong with you, even though <laughs> the latter is true. I mean, of course it's true. Uh, but but mo most of us can't can't uh, handle that kind of confrontation as well as we can handle being offered an alternative to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, when 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 I think of this this point that Jonathan makes, I agree. Um, and you know, there's that we probably all are quite familiar with the analogy of the cave in the, the allegory of the cave <clears throat> in uh, in the Republic, where the this this you know prisoner in the dark cave lost in the world of shadows and manages to free himself. And uh, boy, that climb out of the cave into the sunlight is hard. He does not want to do it. It hurts. Um, and I, it's, it, there is something, there are some parts of your inclination, some parts of your instinct, some part of your, of your unreflective go-to that you have to go, you have to cut against that grain. And that, you know, that's part of liberal education. It's also part of, you know, I have a three and a half year old. Um, part of the thing I'm doing is like to civilize him, is to somehow make him able to sit in the potty and to hold it until he can go and sit in the potty and all kinds of things that, that this proce process of cultivation of particular human capacities um, requires the, the containment. Um, and the, the, the taming of certain other, other parts. I have a colleague at Columbia, Gayatri Spivak, a, a person who is not known for the clarity of her expressions usually, uh, but she has this phrase that I like, she, that I heard her say that, that, that the humanities are about the non-coercive restructuring of desire. Um, I mm. love that because that is what liberal education is fundamentally out to accomplish. It is to reorient your affect, to re reorient your desire in such a way um, that it allows for this for these capacities, these potentialities to to flourish. If you don't get that more fundamental, effective constitution of the student aligned in the right way, you're never going to accomplish the education that you're after. The intellect is, is really comes, my view, as a kind of secondary layer. Jonathan, you have any reactions to, to Roosevelt and Zena? Especially, I like the, the phrase, this, this non-coercive shaping of desire. Is that a good substitute, more positive sounding substitute for shame? <laughs> well, I, I think that, I mean, I have a few thoughts on this. Um, one has to do with, um, with, with discipline, your characterization. Um, I, I do think all three books are about discipline, and in some ways, Roosevelt's and, and Zena's are, in a way, more attracted to what I call asceticism um, than mine is. Um, Roosevelt uh, um, with Gandhi, but he's also attracted to some other ascetics. I remember he says in his book that um, uh, you know, Augustine is the type of person who has uh, extraordinary, sort of uncommonly strong desires. Right, so part of his work is to reorient those desires, just as I think Roosevelt suggests. But part of it is um, there's a discipline involved. You know, he's still looking over his shoulder, even when he's confident he's saved. 
worrying about whether his desire to eat something is a form of gluttony that's going to throw him off track. There's, so there, there is self-discipline, I think, in, in all of these works. As for, for shame, I, I certainly agree with Zena, right? That sense that, that wagging your finger um, at students probably isn't going to work. Um, and furthermore, that, um, that you do need to present something that's, that's appealing, right? And, and in some ways, I wish I'd emphasized that more in my book. I talked about it a little bit, but I think that um, you do have to show that um, liberal education is, uh, it can be joyful, it is painful, <laughs> um, but it can be a joy as well. And that's part of what we do. At the same time, I, I agree with what, what, what Roosevelt said. Um, we're moved by shame. It's not as if you're creating shame, right? There's another structure of shame that you're working against, right? It's shameful not to be clever, honorable to be clever. It's shameful to care too much about books, <laughs> honorable not to care about them. It's shameful uh, to think when urgent action is needed. Uh, uh, honorable not to think and to do instead. Um, and so you can't beat something with nothing. You, you need a different structure of pride and shame. And, and sometimes that's um, by example. Socrates didn't spend a ton of time wagging his finger at people, though I think he did probably do some of that. But um, Roosevelt quotes him pretty early in the book. He talks about how his students are moved by Socrates. And the quote he gives is, uh, aren't you ashamed? Yeah. And the shame has to do with something that Zena talks about a lot in her book about being attracted to low things and unconcerned about things that are better. And I think that distinction between better and worse, seriousness and unseriousness just comes along with an apparatus of shame. And, and it's not, um, it, I think it's helpful to think about in those terms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the part that, that I was associating kind of the the argument for shame in, in your book, Jonathan, was, was my experience in the classroom sometimes when students will, will give arguments or make, give an account of, of a certain passage or reading that um, there's a sense that they're, you know, they're relying on, um, it's, it's, you, you can sort of tell that what they're saying isn't really from the depths of their heart or mind. They're relying on something that they've heard in another class or you know, saying something that they know the teacher or they think the teacher might want to hear. I taught African-American political thought in the fall. So there are moments when students would come up with stuff. You, you want to say, well, that's not that's not quite good enough. <laughs> you know, go deeper. Don't don't rely on the cliches that that you've heard around campus. Um, but that can be a really hard thing to do. Uh, I mean, as, as you were sort of emphasizing Zena, if you overdo it and sort of finger wag, right, you're going to send them running for the hills. But you also, you know, want to somehow show them that what what they're what they're doing isn't isn't quite isn't quite thinking at the at the deepest level. So that that's sort of what struck me when I was when I read that part of your your book, Jonathan. It's a very difficult. Obviously, it's a very difficult thing to pull off as a as a teacher. That's a nice transition, actually, to to Roosevelt. Um, your your book, I think, this is something that both Jonathan and and Zena notice in in their reviews, uh, is is that it's it's rooted very concretely your account of, of liberal learning in this teacher student relationship, and it's not only about the content and 
these these wonderful works that constitute liberal learning, but something striking and mysterious is happening between two people. So does that mean, I guess I'll ask Zena or, or, or Jonathan to reflect on this point and then you can respond, uh, Roosevelt. Um, would, would that mean that uh, you could say the, the relational aspect of, of liberal learning is even more important than the books, than the content? Go ahead, Zena. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I wasn't quite expecting it. So I, I, re I was really moved by that aspect of Roosevelt's book, which uh, is not so much in my book, but very much how I think about things. That is that learning, especially liberal learning, is personal activity. It happens between people. And one of the things that's gone wrong in our universities, in a way, the most basic thing is just that that personal relationship is harder and harder to get. The class sizes are too large. The, the campus structures are too impersonal. And um, it's it's seen as something even a bit weird to connect with your teacher. So there's a kind of an anonymity to contemporary education, which I think is really bad. Uh, it, it blocks off all kinds of possibilities that are really crucial. It also makes the humanities incredibly boring. I mean, there's also just a banal thing about it. You know, in a huge lecture class, who wants to listen to, you know, some 45-year-old uh, talk about Shakespeare in front of, you know, it, it, it's boring. Whereas if you're sitting around a table talking about Macbeth or something, you're going to be excited. So it, so that I think I think that basic truth is very important. As far as the books are concerned, I think the danger of the personal connection and teaching is the danger of the cult of personality. Um, the danger of uh, idolizing a person, of making that person a kind of a, a god or a substitute parent, um, becoming kind of slavishly dependent on their approval. And the, you're the only uh, one wearing a tiara among them. <laughs> <laughs> I request to. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. No, no, you're right. You're right. I, I, I know where I speak. I know the dangers where I speak. So the book, one of the things that's beautiful about a great books program is that on the one hand, there are these people and the people are always deferring to the living people, are always deferring to the dead ones. So, so the book is really your teacher. The books are your teachers. And um, there's not the same kind of danger emotional, psychological, spiritual danger as there is with people. So it's it's a delicate thing. Um, you know, it takes practice, I think, to, to get the right and a, and a good culture, good institutional culture. But I, I think you want you want both of those things. You want um, someone to guide you, help you, um, energize you. Um, and you also a, a living human being and who can give you feedback and in real time um, and encourage you when you're right and discourage you when you're wrong and steer you away from this and put you towards that. Um, but it, you also need the books because those are what you want to take with you for your life. Uh, you don't, you don't really want to be devoted to your teacher for life as, as much as the teacher might like it, it, it probably wouldn't be good. Jonathan, anything to add on that? Well, uh, I, I too have struggled with the dangers of creating a cult of personality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I agree with with uh, Roosevelt that 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 this and Zena that uh, 
one-to-one -one teaching is is important. I think a lot of it still still goes on, but there are some some problems along the lines that Zena described. When I started teaching, I was afraid that the only reason I'd been attracted to the books I'd been taught was because I had really extraordinary uh, charismatic teachers. And uh, I, I found when I started teaching, the books really do have a certain kind of power. They can be, maybe not for everybody, but just as for Roosevelt, you can pick one out out of a trash bin um, and, and see that there's, there's something there. They don't quite teach themselves. <laughs> But um, they do have a certain power. I'd add one thing in common to all three of our books is um, all of our books suggest that um, non-professors, um, people with lots of other things uh, to do, um, can engage in the life of the mind. And, and that gives me hope also that, that, that lots of people can convey enthusiasm for it, um, even if they're not necessarily extraordinarily charismatic um, kinds of teachers. I take solace in this as a mediocrity. <laughs> you should have ordered, you need to order another tiara flag. He needs. <laughs> Wait, you want tiaras for anyone? Anyone gets a tiara now? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll have a skeptor, a skeptor for me. <laughs> flag, you want me to respond to some of that? Yeah, well, yeah, weigh in on the, the importance of the teacher, um, teacher student relationship and, you know, that yeah. dynamic and how it relates to the great book. I guess I'll add one, just one comment into the mix. I think this, this kind of teaching, the teaching that, um, you know, Zena identifies and, and Jonathan agreed with, it's not so easy to do as, and I just suggested in my, in my, um, little comment about you know the difficulty of, of of both attracting students but also pointing out when they're when they're not quite thinking um, on the level you want them to um, there's very little attention that is paid to trying to I hate to use the word train people to do this kind of teaching I, I think you know and in, in, in very few PhD programs is there any attention paid to teaching uh, on the other hand part of me thinks that this this is not something that really can be taught maybe <laughs> so maybe it's it's probably better if we don't try to institutionalize it so i don't know that that was just something i was thinking about as as uh zine and jonathan were talking but but yeah please roosevelt react to to any of that i find that question very interesting to what extent <clears throat> um this can be taught and to what extent it's kind of a um kind of a native talent and uh, you know as usual I, I i tend to think about it as, as, a, as a mixed answer um you can you can get better at it. You can be you can learn to, to do it well. Uh, you can have you can be very charismatic and have kind of the, the the native talent and do it badly because of inattention or not caring or having the the wrong priorities. Mm. Um, so it's a it's a mixed answer. And I do agree that you know our our we do not we don't teach that we don't prioritize that. And, and universities probably in all of ours there's some equivalent to you know as uh, maybe not at St. John's actually but like a, a center for teaching excellence or something we've kind of farmed out these specialists in curriculum design and in mm -hmm. how to talk about difficult subjects and how to create how to do assignments and how to use technology and and there's all this kind of paraphernalia that that um gets attached and which I you know I, I don't think works very well I mean in part because um the people who care enough to take advantage of it are not the people who 
uh, are the problem. Um, as a teacher, I'm very conscious of this, of this, of the peril of, um, you know, the, the cult of personality or, or, or the, the affections of the student being misplaced on you. Um, one thing that, that, I, that I do in my own practice of teaching is I, I love to say I don't know. I love to take the student to the, I love to model for them my ignorance. I love to go to the place and bring them with me to the place where I don't know what the answer is, where I don't know what to make of something. It's part of a, pro a process of like, like kind of deauthorizing your own position, um, stepping down from the, from the place of authority that the institution and the setting gives you. I think you, you need to do that constantly and in a way prepare the student for his or her edible task of killing you, his or her edible task of going beyond you, get, going, going um, um, you know, over transcending you. Um, that is part of, uh, I think, of the responsibility that we have to take very seriously as teachers. Yet this personal intensity is is inevitable. I think this, but you know, the 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 liberal education happens between people. You, it is it is the the conduit, the kind of vehicle, the the transmission line between the teacher and the student is a is an emotional bond. It's a bond, ultimately a bond of affection. I think I I think that you cannot teach liberally. You cannot engage in liberal education with somebody who you don't love, who you don't care for, whose well-being is is intimately um, important to you. Um, so I think that's absolutely required for this situation, for the for the formula of liberal education to, to happen, for the magic, for the thing that 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 a liberal education does to to happen. I want to do want to make a comment about about content. Um, I do believe that you can get a liberal education without any books. You can get a liberal education without going to school. Um, so there's a certain kind of flexibility that, that, that you can, there are kind of many means to, to the same end. Yet, content matters. Not all books, not all material is weak, equally conducive to the kind of liberal education that we are dedicated to. And we, as kind of professionals, this is what we've dedicated our careers to, well, some of us anyway, but but this is this is what we specialize in. This is what we do. We think about what are the most conducive settings, institutions, curricula, practices to help this happen. And I think when you when you when you give that serious thought, you end up not with just any books, not with just any prompts, but you but you end up with works, whether they are textual works like books, but also music and art and, and other kind of expressions of the human impulse towards, towards the good, towards the best kind of life, the human good, then you end up with something like a, like a canon. That is, you end up with, with some works that stand out, some works that are better, more conducive to that task than others. And those works are probably not going to be in anywhere close to confined to your academic field of specialization. Very good, very good. Maybe we could transition. Zena, I would like to ask you about something that you emphasize in, in your book and then get Jonathan and, and Roosevelt to respond. And I think Jonathan 
might have disagreed to an extent with with um, you know part of what what you emphasize, Zina, you emphasize the dangers of what you call the world, and you mention a lot of different um, obstacles to liberal learning. Um, the danger of spectacle. You use Augustine to talk about spectacle and and acedia. Um, so just talk about the you know the obstacles that that you see as particularly prevalent uh, to liberal learning today and, and, and just you know, mention, mention a few parts of that, of that argument. And, um, and then I'll ask you know, Jonathan and Roosevelt to, to respond. So I, I think I've, I've sometimes been a bit uh, misunderstood in a way that there's, there's usually is a disagreement that I think there probably is between me and Jonathan, but the world is not the realm of reality for me. I use the world to talk about uh, the realm of competition uh, in social life. So the competition for wealth, competition for status, competition for power. Uh, and I think that our autopilot as human beings is to be extremely responsive to that machinery more than anything else. So um, part of what an education has to do is to break to some extent that bot now you never totally break it uh, you're always you know you're always a human being and you're always attracted by it but you you do need to see to 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 know how to escape and know how to return so the obstacles i think distraction spectacle um you know the, the we have a real i mean this is a really it's really a cliche everyone says this but i think it is also true uh, the technology has introduced new modes of distraction, intense distraction. Um, but it's also true at the same time that uh, I think young people now, more than when I was young, they face uh, a really intense sense of com competition for goods of status and wealth. Uh, they're very anxious about that competition. It haunts them in a way that it didn't haunt me or many of the people that I knew. And I, I think that makes it more urgent to help people out so that they can choose freely what kind of lives they want to live. So, you know, it doesn't mean that you, that you don't never make money or that you never seek power or that you never um, have a job of any status. It might mean that it's a path I respect and admire, but it means that you, you're, you're alive to a different set of goods and you're able to make, to touch base with reality in such a way that you're, you're functioning um, freely and independently. So that's, that's the, that's the basic idea I have. Right. Uh, right. And it just struck me as, as I was listening to, to you, Zena, that, that maybe you and Jonathan aren't as far apart as I thought, because I just, I just was thinking of the part of Jonathan, Jonathan's book where he invokes Rousseau. And it struck me that you were you were what you were describing is the phenomenon, right? That Rousseau just calls the bourgeois. Maybe our students today are more bourgeois than the people running around in you know mid eighteenth century France, right? Uh, Jonathan, go ahead. A couple of things. Uh, I'm tempted to say something about the Rousseau part. Maybe I will. You may may just have tempted me into it, but um, do it, do it. I, I think that that um, you know, one thing that really struck me in Zena's book, Lost in Thought, still on sale, um, is that... Um, paperback. Out in paperback, folks. You guys lovely, are, you're a hired. lovely green color. I, 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 
it, it may be a misunderstanding, but but my sense was that maybe not in terms of what you would convey in the classroom as an educator. Um, I, I see in the book a real preference, not just for something over status competition, um, but for example, in the, in the Malcolm X chapter um, for prophecy, um, rather than fiddling around, again, not just with status competition, but legislation, right? You compare um, the civil rights movement unfavorably, or at least uh, the, the, the wing of the civil rights movement engaged in trying to uh, uh, get legislation done unfavorably um, to Malcolm X. And to me, it's one thing to say, for example, as you might um, in the Civil War era, that you needed the abolitionists uh, as well as Lincoln um, to make progress, and but maybe another to prefer one to the other. Um, I find, for example, Henry David Thoreau's complaints about the cackling of political conventions when some of those political conventions were Republicans attempting to um, get something done, uh, perhaps in, in, in a halfway unsatisfying kind of way. I, I just cannot prefer Thoreau um, to Lincoln. I don't think you do either. And yet, in, in some ways, that, that, that Malcolm X, the rest of the civil rights comparison, um, led me to led me wonder about that. I, I, I think I probably do have a preference. Uh, so I think I do have the preference that you suspect me of. I, I prefer profits. But I also think there was a reason why in the book, I wasn't just, I don't think I was just expressing a preference that in a certain way would be irrelevant to the point of the book. I think there is something uh, especially truth-loving about prophecy. Um, there can be, you know, someone like Malcolm X, um, even though his political effects maybe were more mixed than someone like King, who was more legislative in the sense that you're interested in, that man really w was in a constant struggle to see what was real. Um, there's a kind of integrity shines through in his in the autobiography it's very admirable uh and um i think i it's also a bit of a i'm a contrarian right i'm pushing in the other direction everyone likes king better than malcolm x but but maybe maybe we should think more about the other kinds of goods that are out there and the other ways of being that are admirable and wonderful that maybe don't have the same kind of obvious practical effect. So I, I'm not really against legislation and compromise and getting stuff done. I'm for it. I just, <laughs> but I, I don't know that it's really an intellectual activity. I think it might be something a bit different. And I also suppose I think it gets enough praise. Yeah. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Good. Good. Roosevelt, you want to add anything on this before we go to our yeah. next topic? Yeah. I'd weigh in with with a kind of a immediate a median position between between these two and and my personal preferences tend to go with the prophets, especially if they're ascetic. Um, or maybe those two are um, in, in inextricable. Uh, you know, Malcolm X being extremely an extremist seat himself. But I think that that, that what we have are different different levels of intervention, different different kind of degrees of abstraction in the intervention. And I I, I think that they, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. They often work together. 
they're both intellectually intense and demanding. I mean, Jonathan put together Lincoln and, and Thoreau, who are contemporaries. I mean, Thoreau dies young, of course, um, but but they're they're contemporaries. And Lincoln, there's no there's no diminishing the power penetration of Lincoln's intellect, the intensity, and the the integrity of his intellect working within the political realities that he's that he's facing. And you can't you can't deny it in Thoreau either. And they're working at different at they're intervening at different levels of kind of discursive layers. Um, I think you know Thoreau is in, is engaged in a Thoreau wants to kind of change the culture, change the paradigms, challenge the way that people see things, kind of jog people out of their sense of complacency. He's just working at a completely different level. And, and you know, what, the, the success of Thoreau, you have to measure in, you know, 50 or 100 years intervals. The success of Lincoln, you're going to measure in the next election. Uh, but I, I, I don't think that they are incompatible or, or at odds with each other. I do think that people tend to have interests, skills, capacities, inclinations that 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 channel them one way or the other but but i i don't think that they are true um you know true true incompatibles good good i want to ask you all uh about the the best way to understand uh liberal education and the best way to i guess talk about it explicitly either to faculty colleagues you know who who might not be terribly interested in it or or to students uh, and so in, in reading the books, Zena, I think you emphasize this, what you call the splendid uselessness of liberal education. And you talk very movingly about the need to understand it as an end in itself. And, and some of the early chapters I've shared with some of my students about um, you know, Aristotle's understanding of the final good and how even if the students don't self-consciously have a final good, they might act in a way that suggests they really do have a final good. So they need to kind of enter into that or a self-examination, uh, you know, to tease that out. Um, Jonathan, you say explicitly in, in your book, um, I think in a couple of places that, that it's not so important that we emphasize that aspect of it or that it be understood uh, only as an end in itself. And Roosevelt, in your book, um, at, especially at the end, at the conclusion, I think you're sort of a mix. You, you both, you do understand it as an end in itself, but also talk very openly about the fact that you think it will yield very important civic goods to the extent that it's widely shared. You know, we have a more democratic, democratically available liberal education. And so maybe maybe for a few minutes we can we can just talk about you know do we really need to understand it primarily solely as an end in itself is it okay to talk about it in, in instrumental terms you know philosophy majors turns out get really good jobs you know is that okay or is it, should we not should we not speak of those things so maybe i'll start with you Zena. what what do you think yeah thank you for that um i think the reason why I press so hard on that in the book. It's a bit connected to what I was saying in the last topic. You know, when I started uh, writing about liberal education, I, it was to about 2015, which, you know, the, the crisis in the humanities was all over the magazines and stuff. Uh, and the type of justification that you saw everywhere was um, liberal education gets you a good job and it's... Um, and it makes you a better citizen. Uh, it makes you love justice. It, it helps you to speak truth to power. Uh, and 
I started to find this infuriating, not just because it's at best a partial truth, because it's it's a dishonest account of our motivations, most of us who go into this stuff. And it's it's truthfully showing a deep disrespect for the people that we're talking to. It's like you parents and kids, all you care about is making money and stuff that you know sounds good, like justice. Um, you can't really understand why we do this. So we're just gonna tell you the, the reasons that you'll understand. That's actually deeply illiberal. It's not uh, a way of talking to one's fellow citizens in a way that's honest. So I, you know, I just tried to push as hard as I could in the other direction, because on the one hand, knowing that the, the other points of view were, especially at the time, totally pervasive. I mean, last couple of years, it's opened up a bit, partly thanks to these books, these wonderful writers that we're talking to. But it, it, it was, it was, it's really, it was like a straitjacket. You know, and, and I remember talking to people while I was writing to colleagues saying, oh, you know, uh, you know, I'm, uh, this is what I want to argue. And they'd say, oh, you, you, you can't say that. You know, I mean, you really, you know, you, you're really undermining us if you, if you do that, because, you know, you're, you're making it sound like we don't do any good. Uh, but I wanted to, to really, because I'm interested in the structure of motivation, right? It's one of the things mm -hmm. I care about. I wanted to hold out the highest ideal. Not because I think it can't ever be compromised. I mean, it, look, I mean, I pull a salary for teaching at St. John's and I make money off that book. <laughs> but, and not to speak of the status and the power that grows daily. But the um, but the, the point is that if you don't even have that ideal in mind, if that's not even factoring in your motivations, you're not even going to get to the compromise thing. You're just going to abandon the whole thing. It's going to be pointless. So, so I was, um, in a way, it was a rhetorical move to to be so relentlessly against any practical application or any practical use. And also, for one other reason, and then I'll turn it over to the others, to me, it's really important to, to understand that a liberal education benefits you no matter what. Okay, maybe you don't get out of poverty, or maybe you get out and then you fall back in again. Um, maybe you choose poverty. Maybe you choose poverty because you're a nutcase like uh, like me, uh, or I, like I was for a time. Maybe you, maybe your life just turns into a catastrophe through no fault of your own. Your liberal education still matters. Uh, it's still with you, and so there's something that's demeaning, I think, about emphasizing too heavily the practical consequences. Because what you're really communicating is your life is worthless unless you can make some money and, and do some justice. Uh, and I really think that's not only wrong, but harmful. But anyway, that's why, that's why I put things that way. Good. It's yeah. uh, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm not sure there's much disagreement here, more difference in, in emphasis, probably rhetorical emphasis. I, I think almost all motives for starting an education, and I don't just mean for you know, the parents I encounter or the students I encounter thinking about uh, going into the work, but, but really um, even people end up becoming professors, um, the motives aren't always desirable. The ones you walk into the front door with, and Zena talks a little bit about this in the beginning of her book. Uh, maybe we go into it because we're good at it, or we've been praised for it, or uh, we're moralists and we think we can reason our way to a more solid foundation for morality or something like that. There are all kinds of reasons. 
one enters into education, those reasons um, you know, can change uh, once you're in there. So I, I think the, you know, offering up um, reasons to, to walk through the door, not exclusively, right? Uh, but at least partly pitched to motives that are, are pretty dominant um, in our culture, that just seems to me to be to be prudent. I don't. I don't think it's a condescension either. I don't mean prudence in that way, but um, in a way, universities have struck a bargain, you know, with the rest of the world. And the bargain is something to the effect of, "Don't kill us, um, like you killed Socrates," and we'll provide a variety of benefits. And 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 that's the model we've got. There may be something wrong with it, um, but it's a model that's that that that's gotten us pretty far in some ways, while while having certain costs. So that's the front door. And then there's what you're looking to at the end. And uh, I'm influenced, I think, by, you know, Locke is a centerpiece of the work. And he suggests that education is is good for really anybody attempting to do anything, liberal education, um, but also for people who plan to devote their lives to study and thought. And I don't think that mixture diminishes him. Uh, Zena has heard me talk before about Benjamin Franklin, a figure who plays a role in the book, whose um, uh, interest in natural philosophy can't be doubted, but at the same time is very much a man on the make, um, along with the people who surround him. And there are lots of figures like that who are emphatically examples of people with mixed motives. And maybe if I really thought about it in the end, I might say, all right, I, I prefer Socrates. I'd rather my student become Socrates, but I think I'd be okay with, with churning out a, a few Franklin. Can I? Zena, go ahead. Yeah. Can I come back just for one second? I think that part of what um, I'm trying to suggest is that mixed motives exist and thrive in a kind of ecosystem with with real ideals so that you if if you lose the if you lose the pure ideals however uh whatever their difficulties are self-righteousness judgment blah, 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 you know uh, impracticality whatever um if you lose those i think you lose the mixed motives too so i i again i don't think i'm disagreeing with jonathan i think i'm just trying to to, to emphasize that there's a uh, there's a complicated structure in our motivations, and, and it's important to get all the elements, bring all the elements to the front so that we can function well. Good. Yeah, Roosevelt, on, please. On this question of, of motives, I just want to share this insight I had the other day, like a few weeks ago. And it's one of those like, insights often are like the obvious things that are probably obvious to anybody, maybe don't even sound like an insight to anybody else, but suddenly they 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 attain this reality for you, which was a realization that because I was so ill-fitted, ill-adapted to the social context in which I find myself as a teenager immigrating to the United States, not speaking English, uh, being from a rural town, that isolated me from my peers in a very radical way. And, and part of how I dealt with that was by reading books and thinking and the, and and developing an identity as an intellectual, as a thinker, as somebody who cared not about these, you know, fashion and popular music and cliques and girlfriends and boyfriends, but that it was that that the crucial role that my ill adaptive my ill adaptation to my social context as a teenager played. So that was just, you know, a revelation. It doesn't 
diminish the value of the life of the mind <laughs> that I ended up in it um, in that way. It doesn't doesn't take away from you know the purity or the 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 uh, desirability of that for its own sake um, without you know those. Um, but you know if I had been a popular, well adapted, easy, fluid teenager, I probably would not have gone the path that I went. Who knows where I would have gone, right? Um, so, and then I, I wanted to say a word too about this question of liberal education for citizenship, because I, I do agree that liberal education, even when it is pursued instrumentally for the sake of good citizenship is, 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 is kind of corrupted. That would, no matter the instrumentality or the use value that you that 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 you subordinated to uh, no matter how good that use value is i think you're 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 kind of off the mark however i do believe that in order to have a democracy you need a liberally educated population that is liberal education equips you precisely with the human capacities dispositions orientations to for self-governance, to participate both in a collective endeavor of self-governance and for individual self-governance. That does not mean that we pursue liberal education for that end, because a liberal education might just as well produce a Thoreau, may just as well produce a, a somebody who opts out of civic duty, somebody who becomes an, uh, 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 you know, goes to a cave and becomes a, uh, a recluse, uh, a monk. Uh, those are absolutely possible and legitimate out outcomes of a successful liberal education. So the goal is not to create better, better citizens, but a good citizen will require a liberal education. Very good. Jonathan, did you want to uh, weigh in on something that I think I saw your hand go up a few minutes back? Um, yeah, j j just really briefly, just to maybe to uh, finish or, or, or briefly add to that line of thinking, uh, that Zena started. I, I, I'm not suggesting. I don't think that 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 we hide <laughs> the idea that um that that liberal education might get you a, a richer life in, in in ways that you can't even presently imagine what what a richer life is. Uh, my argument instead is that there's there, there's that I think I too it's funny it sounds like we were both influenced by crankiness about reading certain articles. <laughs> I, I I read a lot of articles that said we're useless and I thought no that's 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 there's something to that, but it's not, um, you know, in some ways, I'm, I'm not sure that that's not, you know, at least alone isn't a form of arrogance too, right? Um, to, to, to come forward and say, we don't care about what you want us for. Um, we're useless, you, you, you adjust. Right. So we've you've talked about the the threat to liberal education from an overly vocational, you know, technocratic, higher education view. Uh, the the other threat, of course, that that might come from the right. The other threat tends to come from the kind of identitarian left. Um, Zena, in your yet to be published review of of Roosevelt's book, this is something that that struck you um you know roosevelt you take this this attack on on liberal learning you know head on i'll just just read a a passage from it that that struck xena 
uh, you, you write in, in the second chapter, uh, my being a brown immigrant from the Dominican Republic does not make the Constitution less relevant to me than it is to my wife, a white woman born in rural Michigan. She's no closer to and no further from Homer and Socrates than I am uh, or than our two-year-old son will grow up to be. For this reason, what is often identified as the Western tradition has a special claim in general education curricula in societies that have emerged from or have been strongly influenced by that tradition. Uh, I'd be curious, Roosevelt, is, I'll just ask you directly, um, how has the reception been just on that issue as, as far as your book um, book goes? Have you, have you received a lot of pushback you know, from that, from that idea? I, I haven't, although I, I keep expecting it. Obviously, people who, who feel this way and who often are uncomfortable making that argument, and I can understand that if you are upper middle class, white, cisgender, male. Is that right? Yeah. Um, you, <laughs> might, you might feel uncomfortable making that case. You might feel uncomfortable saying, well, you know, even if you're a person of color, even if you're an immigrant, even if you're a non-elite, even if you come from a marginalized community, this is the education that can, that, that, this is an education that really matters to you and can be transformative and is and is important. Um, but many many people who have felt uncomfortable in making the case themselves have um, been enthusiastic about my making the case. So so I've gotten a lot of kind of positive reinforcements from people who agree with this but were uncomfortable making the case. Um, I have not gotten a lot of pushback from the other end. But again. I, I keep expecting it, or, or maybe, maybe the people who are, you know, hold a, a different position aren't reading my book yet. Uh, but I, I, I keep expecting it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something that frustrates me: the this idea that uh, Aristotle, Dostoevsky, and Augustine are all share whiteness in some meaningful ways. To me, you know, utterly insane. They all seem. You know, so distant from us, whatever yeah. our skin color, yeah. right? That that they all have something um, different and interesting. Uh, it's you know, it, it's condescending, and and you often find this, and maybe Grant can speak about this. He's probably thought about it more than I have. But you often find that in in ideological positions that st style themselves as progressive or or um, in our vocabulary to the left. Sometimes you find a kind of internalized um, something related to what Du Bois called the double consciousness, kind of an internalized mainstream view that has been that, that that has been incorporated into their into their ideological position. And this is, I think, this is this happens here because there is something condescending and something uh, that diminishes the student when you say you who are from marginalized or minority background really cannot relate to this tradition of learning that a student who is not from a marginalized background can. That is, this kind of education is good for the mainstream, upper-class, privileged student, but it's not good for you. It's good for them, but not for you. Um, some of that attitude has kind of been internalized into the, into the critique of the canon. So you have people who are very well-meaning, who are very progressive, who really fall for this for this posture beneath which there is this condescension, beneath which, there, beneath which there is this sense that 
this is good for other people, but really not good for you. Zina, do you want to add anything on this? Yeah, I would only add that I suppose I'm a little bit less surprised than Roosevelt is that, that he hasn't gotten pushback. And it's partly because of something I think Jonathan diagnoses so effectively in his book and that Roosevelt echoes. It's, I think, one of the things I really appreciate about both of those books that a lot of this culture, um, not, not progressive people who I've lived with my whole life, but something about the, the progressive, the tyrannical progressive culture that mm-hmm. one could find on a campus. Right. Right. It's not it's not something that's deeply and broadly and sincerely and thoughtfully held. There are a few people who have really thought about things, who developed ideas, and then there's a lot of people who are afraid. And my own experience, I get a, I've gotten a little bit, littlest bit of pushback on, you know, having teaching at a school that that only uh, teaches supposedly the white books. Um, but not anywhere near what I thought I was going to get either. And I think that's because in the climate of fear, there's actually just a ton of unexpressed sympathy and, and, and real and boredom and really looking for a different way to understand things. So I, and I, I, I think that, um, it's, it's, it's one of the things I've been thinking about more and more is what an inauthentic representation it is of even the progressive tradition of liberation to treat these books as white books. You know, I, I, I was so excited about Malcolm X and then I found out about Huey Newton and then I found out about, you know, every single, you know, Richard Wright and then, and Zora Neale Hurston, every single well-known black activist from the 19th to 20th century, they all had educations in the great books as far as I can see. So it's, it's, uh, and they were grateful. They, they didn't see it as something that was white. They saw it as something that they took for themselves Mm-hmm. And, beca- and became who they were, who was sometimes someone who wanted to get along and sometimes someone who wanted to be defiant. And all of the freedoms that you see in, in Roosevelt's book, all the different options, that's what the books provide for you. So I, I think it's very refreshing and very hopeful. And I, I also, I mean, Roosevelt's not alone. There's um, there's now, uh, I, I, think, I think it's going to be pretty successful, African-American classical studies movement. Other other voices that are just coming out yeah. in frustration, saying, "Why are you telling me I can't read this?" You know, yeah. that's, this, not, this, that's not the this, kind of thing you're supposed to tell people. You're not supposed to tell someone of a different nation or color or background you can't read this. That's outrageous. What what you say is in a echoes a point that that Mark makes about the relative marginal status of kind of radical wokeism in the even in the academy. I mean, I think it has a a, a big a big kind of cultural presence and a big kind of people, but but. When you get down to it, it is it is not nearly as widespread, dominant, or as uh, as sincerely or thoughtfully held as as people imagine. Go ahead, yeah, Jonathan. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to first point out that Roosevelt called me Mark, and now I feel erased. Oh my God! It's the second time I do that in this conversation. I mean, Jonathan. talk about a problem of identity. Let's yes, talk about that. I'm sorry. Epistemological <laughs> violence. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I, I don't have 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 a, a, much to add about this except to say that you know one does spend a lot of time weighing the relative strength of you know the, the vocational thread and the the left identitarian thread and I don't think it pays much to note one more than the other. I, I mean I think that one comes mainly though not entirely from within the university. One comes from without, but they're. They're both quite potent. Uh, at my previous school, Carthage, um, 
they shut down or or uh, considered shutting down uh, programs, not just in things like, you know, great books and that kind of thing, but but physics, biology. Why? Because, um, you know, why do you need a physics program? You can just hire somebody to be part of the engineering program who will teach some some physics. So that that's a real threat. On the other hand, it's often pushed by people you know, like trustees who aren't there all the time. Um, so it might have not have an enormous effect on the day-to-day um, existence of the university. What what you feel like like you can say um, without concern of ostracization and that kind of thing. So I think they're both potent threats, and they, they share something too. At least a couple of things. I mean, one is a kind of presentism, right? That is to say, the left might say, "Why are you dithering, right, about what the aim of life is when we've got some work to do?" out there and uh, mm-hmm. similarly why are you urging me to dither when i need to to know excel the moment i graduate because that corporation doesn't want to train me um so there's a kind of uh, uh presentism right what, what what can you get me right now to be contrasted with a kind of dithering and the other element of it is i think some real loss of faith, at least with respect to bigger questions. I'm not sure, I shouldn't say loss because I don't want to be nostalgic. I'm not sure there was any great faith about it before, but that there, there's, you can get anywhere <laughs> but by asking fundamental questions. And that I think one finds even, um, you know, in university faculties. In fact, to go back to something like mentioned a while ago, the question of teaching versus institutionalization. That's one reason I'm at, at an advocate of a certain kind of institutionalization or um, liberal education culture. Um, because I think at a place like Ursinus, for example, we, we teach together um, in the first year program that helps to build an atmosphere in which in some sense we're engaged in the same kind of activity that we're asking our students to engage in. And even people who haven't had a liberal arts education, so to speak, beforehand, sometimes are drawn in and become very effective um, teachers um, as, as a result um, in the program, no matter what their, their background or subject matter or uh, department or, or what have you. So um, th- there's a lot to be said um, for that, because you can't expect that people are going to come in with the expectation that asking questions outside of the fields of science, science and mathematics are, are really going to, uh, so to speak, get results or be worthwhile. Why don't, uh, I'm getting close to the end of our time, um, but one, one particular aspect of, of Jonathan's uh, argument that we haven't talked about that I, that I think would be you know, interesting for, for a wider audience to make sure that they, they hear is, Jonathan, your differentiation between what you call being being reasonable and following an argument to it to its end, this this kind of um, self what I've called self discipline, um, why that is different or how it is different from what is now called in the academy critical thinking. This language of critical thinking is just all over the place. So, Jonathan, maybe you could just say a, a couple words about you know the difference that that you draw in your book um, between liberal learning and, and critical thinking and, and Roosevelt and Zena, you can, you can jump in and, and react. Your, your social media frenemy and uh, hired political and corporate guns are, are often quite adept at what we think of as 
critical thinking when applied to the arguments of other people. That is to say, they could be pretty adept. They clearly know uh, the difference between a relatively strong and a weak argument or good at picking apart the weaknesses in other people's arguments. Um, they don't tend to apply that same lens to their own arguments uh, because they've, they've got other motives. And so the reasonable person certainly needs such skills, but the reasonable person in my book is above all the person who says to himself and hopes others say to him, let's stop fooling around, let's stop hawking our wares, let's stop boosting our tribe, let's stop bullshitting, and there's something to be said for bullshitting, and uh, let's try to find out, as if it really mattered, what conclusions uh, we can draw um, from the evidence that we've got in front of us, and if we don't have enough evidence in front of us, what we might need to find out in order to draw um, some kind of conclusion with whatever degree of certainty we might be able to draw it. So um, reasonable people consider uh, reason um, a guide rather than an instrument with which to beat other people over the head. And even if they go into the enterprise, to go back to an earlier discussion, with the idea that reason's going to be really great in order to help me get certain ends, right? There's going to be some possibility of noticing that your ends are self-contradictory or dissatisfying or otherwise defective and of revising those ends. There's a possibility too for um, altering one's sense of what one's ends are uh, in the course of um, reasoning with, with others or sometimes alone, but uh, others are somehow always present. Right. So, so the hope is that they're, if you're engaging in the kind of rationality that's at work in, in liberal learning, there's a kind of deeply moral component in that you're willing to turn that self-examination, that rationality inward that, you know, who knows if that happens, if you're, you're doing whatever, whatever it is that people call critical thinking. Um, Roosevelt, you want to react? Yeah, you know, critical thinking is one of those phrases that I really dislike. Um, so often it's just used to mean thinking. Like sometimes I, when people talk about critical thinking, it's like, what's the other kind of thinking that you're contrasting that against? But critical thinking is kind of mechanistic, right? Like, like this kind of this kind of capacity to 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 analyze or critique, to argue. In some sense, its value is value free, and I and I, I I tend to think of reason. Reason reason is oriented towards the truth. Reason is oriented towards a clear a, a, a clearer and more accurate account of reality. That is its good. The good of reason is true. So there is an inescapable moral dimension to to it. Um, and you just don't have that critical thinking. Critical thinking is, you know, you can learn a, a, a programming language and construct a program to achieve almost anything. That's critical thinking is kind of like that, where it's technical and the skill. It's valuable. You need, it's good to know computer languages. You, we, we all need to be good at, 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 at thinking. We all, that's, that's really important, but um, it's a kind of, you know, it's a, I don't know, it's like, empty rational calories or something 
not, there's no there's, there's no sustenance in it. Lena? Uh, yeah, you just reminded me of the one of the things I love most. I haven't had lunch. Um, you you can handle it. Think about think about Gandhi. Um, the one of the things I loved about Jonathan's book, which just reminded me, is this amazing first sentence about reasoning not being means to an end, but an authority. Um, so I I find that very powerful and um. I, I too uh, hate the term critical thinking. I'll just join the course. I think that one thing that occurs to me just in light of what we were talking about earlier is whether, whether critical thinking is actually attract, like, do you, do, are there people out there who think I, oh yes, I'm bad at critical thinking. I better go and learn it. You know, if it, 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 that doesn't seem like a, a very, I, I don't know. So I'm surprised that it's had this much staying power as a marketing tool. I will say this, one of the ways I think about it sometimes is, and this connects to what Roosevelt was saying earlier about citizenship, education or thinking uh, has certain goals that are internal to it, and then it has certain effects, which are desirable or undesirable, but you have to make that distinction, it seems to me. And I think that you learn how to think by thinking about something, you, by engaging your mind on a subject matter and uh, that's what's going to be attractive to you is the subject matter, because we we don't really like to to look at our own inadequacies as thinkers and as reasoners. But if if we're transfixed by something, if we're if we're paying attention to something, whether it's a fundamental question or some chunk of reality, you know that we're even uh, approaching in the sciences or in mathematics, we will feel our we will have to sacrifice inevitably whatever we wanted to be true, we'll make mistakes, there'll be lines of thinking that don't go anywhere. So we will be forced into a kind of self-examination. And that's the healthy, balanced human way to do it, is to do it because, you, um, because you're in love or fascinated with something else. And that's how we develop, it seems to me, um, rationality, thinking, and all the virtues of reasonableness um, and whatever is real in what, what we call critical thinking. Very good. Maybe we can, we can end on this. That reminded me, Zina, of, of one of the things that struck me about the conclusion of, of your book when you bring up viewpoint diversity and, and make the case against it and suggest it's an insufficient uh, solution to the problems that beset liberal learning. On the one hand, I was very sympathetic to that argument when, when I read it. On the other hand, part of what has frustrated me about the present environment on, on campuses and watching students is that um, as a student, I kind of remember that, um, you know, I'm in my, in my 50s, early 50s, when it was okay to, you know, say something conservative one day <laughs> and a week later say something really progressive. And there was a kind of, you know, you were allowed to be a little schizophrenic about your opinions. And in that sense, having some viewpoint diversity is a good thing that you show people that there's different ways of thinking about this and, and it's okay to, to wake up one day and think, oh, what I thought yesterday, doesn't, that's not right. Um, but anyway, I, I wanted to, to just poke you a little bit and see if, see, see, allow you to, to make your case though against the, uh, against the, the, the sufficiency of, of viewpoint diversity. So part of the argument is that it's it's a bit diminishing of the students to reduce them to a viewpoint. 
just as it is in the case of ethnic identity or gender identity or what have you. So, um, and it, there's something um, perniciously administrative about thinking about the right assortment of things, you know, yeah. a little bit of, I want a chocolate cream and a chocolate raspberry and I want a, <laughs> so uh, I want the almond sprinkles. And, so th I, that's part of my concern is something like that. But I also have had the experience in in my classrooms at St. John's. Now, St. John's doesn't is not as diverse viewpoint wise as it used to be. A lot of the people who were religious or conservatives in my day have gone off to these more um, ideological colleges. Then they they don't necessarily come here. So we have a more in a way um, a, a very mainstream set of college students, and they have. You know they're very sensitive. They have all kinds of disagreements, and they 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 they're sensitive about hot button topics, all these kinds of things, just the same as on any campus. And yet, if you get them thinking about something serious, if you get the conversation to the right level, none of that matters. Um, none of that matters. So, to me, the 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 classes I've been in where students have gotten offended or conflict has broken out, that's happened because the conversation is superficial. And if you get past that super, if you get past those surfaces and then everyone, everyone's happy. Like they love to be in a real conversation. They're, they're incredibly happy there. They don't want to fight, but when, if, if they're not given that opportunity, then you get to these places where conflict breaks up. So I, so I think that that it can and should, I do actually believe in diversity in some way or other, that kind of environment can and should be diverse, can include people from all, of all different kinds and all different backgrounds. And there's some kind of uh, symbolic meaning to that that I really appreciate and value. But it's not actually what really matters when the chips are down in the classroom. What matters is, what are you talking about? How serious is your conversation? Uh, are you getting to the depths of what it means to be a human being? Or are you just skittering around on the surface and uh, you know, spitting out your opinions? Right. We, right. we have to past opinions. Yeah, opinions yeah. Roosevelt, you want to react? Yeah. Um, I guess I want to first of all acknowledge that behind the, the 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 desirability for viewpoint diversity is that is that is an actual reality that that so much of the conversations on campuses are superficial and so much of them are ideologically kind of monocultural. Um, so we need we need to challenge the sacred cows. And we need to challenge the orthodox. We need to challenge the com, the the what goes with that saying, the assumption. So that's good. Um, but I think about hearing Zena talk about how when you get beyond the surfaces, um, these kinds of you know sensitivities or 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 brush to taking offense or kind of shutting down the conversation dissipate. How do we create that? Like what what are the conditions? For such conversations to take to take place, and it, it brings me back to the to the conversation, you know, the the the, the round of conversation around about teaching, because that is one of the jobs of the teacher. One of the jobs of the teacher is to somehow foster, create an environment of of, of intimacy, of, of honesty, of trust. Um, you you can only have those deep conversations uh, when you are comfortable in taking risks, when you are comfortable. Uh, when you when you trust and care about the other people, when you are part of a community of trust, a community of of, of affection, so that is part of the thing that 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 you have to create in the classroom. That is part of that is part of the job. And and you know you don't you can't learn that 
you know, you can learn that from just reading a book. Um, you, you, you have to be really invested in that task um, and, and care about the task and understand that that's part of what, you, what, what you're doing. Um, there, I, I often think that part of what I do as a teacher is to be the protector of minority opinion. That is, I have to position myself in such a way that minority opinion can be voiced and thrive and be, be, be part of the conversation. Um, quite apart from whether I agree with that opinion or not. So I, I am often triangulating to that, to, that, to that position, kind of moving the center of gravity of the discussion so to create room for the dissenting point of view, even when I disagree with them. Jonathan? Yeah, um, so, so I, I agree, first of all, with Zena that in some ways viewpoint diversity is a superficial way of thinking about uh, what we want at the university. Um, it does have roots in an idea that I think is more serious. So to go back to, to Locke, uh, he discusses both the importance of listening to the opposite arguings of men of parts, um, to use his <laughs> language, and uh, but also uh, people uh, who you may think fall short uh, of you in intellectual gifts who merely have different experiences. That's important too. And it's hard to do that on your own, right? You, you could try. Um, but it's difficult. And I think faculty, you know, capital F, <laughs> um, there's often an arrogance about this. That is to say, I, I mean, I certainly think, for example, I can teach Karl Marx, even though I'm not a communist, I think I could do it fairly. But at the same time, you know, it seems, especially during relatively charged political times, uh, which is most of the time, where we sit politically can influence what subjects we think are pressing that really need to be in the curriculum, what books we think are most worth reading, what arguments we're really going to look over carefully with great skepticism and which we're going to just add to our arsenal um, and be glad that we've seen it. Even something as uh, mundane as how long a student's comment seems to be when you're listening to a student talking and then you sense some discomfort in the room or you yourself are uncomfortable with the opinion, it can seem to go on and on and on. Whereas a comment of precisely the same length, right, that's more palatable, it feels like it doesn't take as much time. So I think that, you know, faculty members, no matter how well trained we are, are susceptible to all of these things. And, um, to go, to go back to humility, it does drive me crazy when faculty members are so dismissive of the idea that, that maybe the faculty should be less than 96% left liberal. Very good. Very good. Well, thanks to you all. This has been a wonderful discussion, and I'm really, really grateful uh, that you took the time to write the, the books that you did and uh, took the time to, to talk to me today about about those books. I hope they are uh, flying off the shelves at, at bookstores uh, everywhere. And um, yeah, thanks again for being here. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. 
Our Twitter handle is at the EI pod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening and see you next time on Enduring Interest.